My journey started when I was 27, and I had just come back from India. I spent a year there, helping with the poor folks in villages. Something was different about me when I came back. I wasn't the same person that I was when I left. I felt like I was in pieces. I didn't, I didn't feel like there was anything to hold on to. I didn't feel like there was a center. So I found a life coach, and she really pointed out that I needed spiritual community to help this sense of incompleteness, not feeling whole. One day at work, my boss called me one day and he said, you know, my church cornerstone has a Christmas play. Why don't you come? I remember there was a car on stage and I remember the music. It was wonderful. The candlelight service was the most beautiful service. I cried the whole time. It felt like the sun was shining in my heart that had been dark for so long. There was something that I could hang on to here. And so I came back. You know, knowing myself, I knew that I needed people around me that would support me. I remember asking my boss and his boss if they would pray for me to find the community that I needed. The people that I met in my small group were wonderful. We were sitting around talking about what we should do, what the group should do next. And someone mentioned, well, there's this book called Experiencing God. So we got the books. So I opened up the book to week one, the first lesson, and the title was, Jesus is the way. And it said, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you might as well stop there. It was like he drew a line in the sand and said, Aletha, you've come this far. Now, I just need you to do, the, to do this one last thing. And it's to accept me. and it felt like a big double dog dare. So I texted my friend Ashley, and I was like, oh gee, Ashley, I think I need to accept Jesus in my heart. But I don't know how, help. She texted back immediately with exactly what I needed to hear. Just tell him sincerely that you love him and that you want him in your life. Jesus, I love you, and I want you forever. And since then, I feel like he's been putting me back together, one piece at a time, in the way that he wants, in the way that he wants. As he puts me together piece by piece, a lot of it has to do with serving. When I was coming to Cornerstone and I didn't know anybody, there was row at the front door that made me feel so welcome and so loved. I want to give that to everyone else who's coming to Cornerstone. My name is Leith Shelby, and this is how I'm building my life.
know, it's, what's pretty amazing is that, you know, we realized that because, you know, the four services, a lot of times we're not getting a sense of everything that's actually going on in the larger community that makes the church what it is. And, and um, you know, one of the things is we, we talked about it, that we went into this fall series, we said, you know, we're talking about how to build a life. We're going back and looking at a historical example of someone who built something for God that blessed people um, with this whole Nehemiah study. Uh, why don't we also talk about what God's been doing and try to share that? Because there's some amazing things that have been happening. And sometimes they're happening with a person who's, who's right next to you and you don't even know what an amazing thing is, is really occurring. And there are stories like that happening all the time. And so part of the fall, one of the things we, we decided that we wanted to do was just periodically show examples of how Christ is really building a life for people and what a difference is being made. And I found that to be very encouraging. And I think you understand. Um, I know not everybody is necessarily completely aware of this, but you know we've made a real decision as a church uh, to to go and and to reach out and expand. And uh, we've already made a commitment. And we're very involved in launching a second site here in San Francisco. So we're going to have two campuses: the Mission Campus and the one on the west side of the city, uh, Merced by Lake Merced and Brotherhood Way. And we'll talk more about that in the months to come. I know a lot of you are already aware of that. We're calling that the Isaiah 542 project. It's connected to a verse in Isaiah 54:2. One of the things that we wanted to keep reminding everybody about, though, and these cards. Um, are both available in the you know, foyers and the Connection Center and also in some of the seats as well. Um, just to be aware of this, we've already had a significant response and that's been fantastic. We're needing at least 100 plus committed volunteers going into this launch. And what that means is it's gonna open up a tremendous amount of serving opportunities here on this campus as well. So both people who feel like, you know, God, I, I wanna be a part of helping start something that is connected, it's new, it's kind of an adventure together on that end. We, we have a lot of people stepping out to do that and a feeling like that's what God wants them to do. And at the same time, you gotta remember, we, you know, we are still having our four services here. And that means there's gonna be tremendous needs, legitimate opportunities are gonna open up. We're gonna need people who have either, even if you're new or you've been coming for a while, haven't really jumped in. You can see the different categories of service there that are there and there's subdivisions around that as well. Even though the launch is taking place in January of next year, which is still a few months away, we really do need this time to really have everybody who's gonna serve let us know. Because there's a, there's a kind of a training and ramp up period. It's gonna make a huge difference. Also, you might be aware that um, there's an opportunity as well to, to, to give towards the project. Now, I'll just be very frank with you. We've already invested uh, uh, over, over half a million dollars in getting ready for this. And uh, the entire budget's gonna be at least a million dollars when it's all said and done. It's a significant investment that we're making in a very committed way, because we believe strongly that there are other people uh, who are waiting to be touched by, by what we have to offer in the name of Jesus, in this city, and is important. And uh, we also be we believe we've seen it with our own eyes, people coming to know Jesus. We've watched with our own eyes prodigals coming home to Christ here in San Francisco. And what a tremendous blessing that's been, that answer to prayer that someone else has had. And to see someone running away from God come back home. What a beautiful thing that has been. And then also just to realize that, you know, we're helping people to grow and hopefully maybe in some ways keeping people sometimes from doing really foolish things Instead, learning how to break free of things, create a life in Christ that ends up being a blessing generationally to other people, some of whom aren't even born yet. All the good that it can be done. So just really be aware of that, whether it's in supporting it and investing it from the get-go or just serving, which is what we're really asking a lot of people to consider doing, please keep it prayerfully in mind. 
it's a very important time for us. And um, I think we're all going to learn a lot together about what it means to build and have courageous faith. And so at a personal level, I'm looking forward to being stretched. It's already happened a little bit. And um, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. We'll talk a little bit more about how God did that with Nehemiah. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll move into the, the message itself. And Lord, you know, again, I just want to, you know, just make it really clear that, you know, we're here to, to listen for your voice. And, you know, I know, I know for some people, uh, it may have even been a very courageous, kind of almost fearful thing to just even walk through the doors of a church because there's so much connected to that. And maybe, maybe, maybe it took a tremendous amount of courage just to even come. And, and, I, and others of us, Lord, we're carrying things into, the, into this day um, that are hard. And, and, and others of us just feeling really you know, thankful. And, and Lord, I know you know everything about us. And you know our struggles. You know our dreams. And you know the things. I know that there are things you're trying to build in us. So as we look back in time, Lord, I just pray that you'd bring out some principles. My goal, my desire is to see that all of us would be strengthened in our capacity to move forward with you, and that we'd also learn a little bit about how we can talk to you in a way that produces results, because a lot of times we're gonna have situations come up, we're gonna need you to show up. We're gonna need your intervention, Lord. So I just pray for grace and blessing and life and the goodness of God to fill this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, Lord. Let it be, let it be. So, um, we've been talking about Nehemiah, as you are aware. Rather than go back over and re, sort of recover where we've been from a you know, historical perspective and all of that, I, I'm just going to assume that many of you have been here. If you haven't, I'll try to share it in such a way that it will make sense. But um, I'd rather have us just actually jump into the narrative itself and then go where we need to go. So we're going to look at the first chapter again. This will be the last time we spend time here in Nehemiah 1. But the idea is to learn from this man named Nehemiah who has a book that's named after him, after him that takes a cross section of his life, a significant slice of his life is highlighted in the book of Nehemiah, and to distill from that concepts that we can use in the building of our own life with God that will produce a blessing in the life of others. So having said that, if we can, rather than reading through verses 1 through 3, let's just jump down to verse number 4. I want to we'll read this together very quickly and then move forward. When I heard this, that's Nehemiah, he's saying this, when I heard this, and again, this is taking place about 450, 500 years before you know, the coming of Jesus, his birth. So 400 plus years. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. Now, what did he weep about? He wept for, and he, when he, what he heard was that Jerusalem, uh, even though it had been resettled, was still in a very vulnerable, disgraceful place. The walls around it had been broke, not been rebuilt. They were still rubble. The gates had been burned. They had not been restored. As a result, the people were vulnerable and continually um, unable to live with real security because their assets were always capable of being plundered at any time. Nehemiah says, when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and I fasted, and I, I prayed to, to God of heaven, and I asked God to, and then, and then he starts into this. Now, again, remember what we talked about last week? Again, not trying to um, assume everybody was here. Remember how we mentioned that, uh, that Nehemiah did not really put himself in a position as a critic? And we talked about how easy it is when other people are sort of disappointing us to drop into a place of criticism. And how Nehemiah instead, and he could have very easily and felt justified in saying, Lord, you know, these people, you know, they're really not taking care of themselves. That's their problem. You know, what's wrong with them? Don't they have any pride? Don't they have a sense of pride? I mean, how can they just be so lazy and not willing to, to, to respond to you? I mean, he could have very easily re responded with a critical spirit, but instead, Nehemiah committed himself 
to being a change agent, a catalyst of something positive. And that's a real good thing for you and me, too, because we're always going to have opportunities. The easy thing to do most of the time, especially relationships, is to point out what's wrong. It can happen in church. It's just it's so easy to drop into that place. Nehemiah really does model for us the attitude that I think God really wants to cultivate inside of you and me, that instead of trying to be a critic, an evaluator, he becomes a joint confessor. In fact, one of the things he does is he allows the, that news to disturb his world, invade his world. So first off, he allows that to happen. He says, I heard the news. That's one thing. But then he does, it, he does something else. He lets that word settle into his heart. It says that I mourned. I, I, just, I just couldn't let it go. Settle down inside. But then Nehemiah doesn't stop there. What he does is, in addition to just sort of letting it settle in, he decides to fix his focus so that he won't just like let it go. He fixes his focus through restrained eating, that's what he calls fasting, and prayer. But he doesn't even just stop with that. He then has these general prayers that he's offering, and he distills them down, frames them, forms them into a very specific prayer. That prayer is captured here in verses 5 through 11. So we can look at this together, if you will. Look at me at verse 5. This is Nehemiah's prayer. We're going to look at his prayer, unpack it, and then apply it to our own situation with God. All right. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Listen to my prayer. Look down. See me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I, we have sinned. We have, we have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, the regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Lord, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Oh, Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me and put it into his heart to be kind to me. And then he adds as a little back end piece. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. That is, I worked for the king as someone who tested his drink before he took it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Now... I want us to think for a moment about this. It would have been so easy for, okay, let's, let's, let's approach it this way. What do we notice about Nehemiah's prayer that is absolutely absent? Because he's kind of in a frustrated place when he hears it. I mean, the distress of his people is causing distress in his heart. One of the things that's interesting is that he doesn't, want, for one, he doesn't criticize. But what he also doesn't do is he doesn't criticize God. He doesn't start blaming God. Like, God, because, you see, like, God, you didn't come through. Where are you coming through for us? We're your people. I mean, there, I was talking to someone after the services last weekend, and it was really, I, I appreciated her heart on this. She said, you know, sometimes, to be honest, one of the things I have a hardest time getting past is sometimes I have a, a hard time feeling like God's not coming through for me. And so sometimes maybe I think I'm struggling to just, like, almost forgive God. And I was talking, it was an interesting exchange that occurred there. And I said, well, one thing I know for sure, don't, we, we never gain by making God our, our enemy. Remember, God is for us, not against us. That's one. I'm positive of that. He gave everything for us. I know that. He may not always answer specifically why, but he gives us an answer in himself. He walks through us through suffering. Play. Anyway, the point is, was talking about it in the exchange. I was saying, you know, 
Um, Nehemiah could have very easily started his prayer by saying, you know, Lord, you're supposed to be um, the one who takes care of us. Why aren't you showing up? Where are you? I'm very disappointed in you, Lord. You know, he could have said anything he wanted to do, like kind of indirectly blaming God for not being there for his people. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? How does he start? Let's look at this. Let's just kind of walk through this. First thing he does, look, number one, we'll just put this up, is he starts with praise what I call, and what I call proportionality. If you look at that fifth verse, he starts by saying, Lord, you are great. You are awesome. Um, he starts to recount to God um, who he is. You're, you're the one who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. I mean, this is a, a beautiful, what he starts by doing is declaring who God is. But he's saying, God, this is who you are. This is who I know you to be. You are the God who is faithful. You are the God who has loving, loving kindness. That you, you are the God who has an unfailing love that doesn't abandon us. So he starts by declaring. Now, one of the, you know what's interesting is, is what praise does. In fact, um, I put this in your handout. It's kind of an ancient quote. It's, it's a quote from St. Augustine. And Augustine was talking about what happens when people acknowledge God or when people choose to speak poorly of God. Look what he says. This is, in, this is in the third column of the handout itself on the inside. He says this, God is neither better if thou praise him, nor worse if thou disparage him. Is that, in other words, God's essential character is not affected by what is said about him. He is who he is. And what's interesting is this. In this very moment, the name of the Lord, there's no question about it. And on a given week, I, I, I can't even imagine how many times God's name is used in derogatory ways. It, it's stunning. It's used sometimes as a placeholder, as a space filler, as kind of a back end to something. But if we were thinking about all the things that were said about, and then at the same time, there's, there's, there's so many people who are also speaking highly of the Lord and honoring him. And, and what, what Augustine would say is, God is un, really not changed by whether or not we praise him or he's not better if we do, he's not worse if we disparage him. Look what he says, but thou, you and me, you and me, by praising him that is good art the better. And by disparaging thou art the worse. He remains good as he is. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying this, that when, when we praise God, when we acknowledge God, when we sing about God like we just did, when we worship, and by the way, worship is simply from an old word that means worthyship. It means to declare worth or value to something. When we acknowledge God and who he is, look, God isn't changed. Nor is he diminished when people take him and use his name and treat it like dirt. He's unchanged. But you know what he says? It's the truth. He says what really changes is what happens inside of a person in relation to what they speak about him. In other words, it, we're changed. When we acknowledge God, and we declare who he is, he becomes more of that to us. We become like the things we worship. It's a great principle. That's why words have power. That's why a lot of times one of the best things we can do in a relational context with people we love and are trying to build healthy relationships is to speak life. When we speak life, we enhance life inside of us. When I say I love you, and with, with the degree of sincerity in my heart, my love for you is enlarged. When I say to God, you are worthy, you are holy, it's not like God is unchanged. He's not, he is who he is. But my heart is changed in relation to him. You see that? Nehemiah got it. He starts off by saying, Lord, this is who you are. Then what does he do? What is the second thing he does? He drops into, you can see it, confession and repentance. This is what I call the owning it section. 
He starts to say, Lord, you know, God, uh, uh, we have, all of us have let you down. We've all, we've all, um, he says, we really haven't obeyed your commands. We've, we've sinned terribly. Basically, is, what he's saying is this, Lord, I'm going to start off by saying this. Not only this is who you are, but let me tell you, I think we've wandered off course, we. And I, and I was reminded of that great 139th Psalm where David, in a moment of absolute raw honesty before God, says to, to the Lord, search me, O God. I'm an open book to you. Know my heart. Look inside me, test me, and, and know my anxious thoughts. And man, do we have anxious thoughts sometimes. He says, I want you to see if there's any offensive way in me, Lord, and I would like you to lead me. If there is, God, show me the way out of that. Lead me in the path that is filled with life, the way everlasting, and away from a way that takes me away from you. I, but I'm giving you, Lord, permission to look inside of me. And what do you see? Show me, Lord. Reveal my heart that I might know how to grow in the way that you have for me to go. This is just a totally authentic prayer. Now, I put this underneath the Augustine quote. It's one of my favorite authors, Gordon MacDonald. He's, he's, he's much more uh, older now. He's many advanced years. One of the things he did was I loved his paraphrase of Psalm 139, 23, and 24. And this is what he said. He put it in his own vernacular. He said this, check out my soul. Tell me what you see. God, would you just look inside of me? Check out my soul. Tell me what you see, oh God. I, I invite you to test me. Play back to me. Play back. Show me. Play back to me what what you discern of my convictions so that when the heat of life is turned up, and it will be turned up at times, when the heat of life is turned up, I'll have confidence in the possibility of, of, a, of a God-pleasing attainment, that I'll do the right thing in your eyes. So God, work in me. Work in me. And what he's saying is this. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to play games with you. I'm inviting you to challenge me at every level of my life. Get into the dark places. Get in there, Lord. Come on in. Look at my heart. Get me better. Get me on the path that leads to life, not the path that wanders away from you. That's exactly what Nehemiah was doing. You see that? He starts out by saying, God, you are faithful. You are amazing. You are awesome. Your love is unfailing. And he's in the middle of this dilemma, right? He needs God to show up. His people are in trouble. He's stuck. He can't move. He needs help. He says, God, help me. You're great. Also, just to remind you, Lord, I'm owning this thing. This is not about you. This is about us wandering off course. And then what does he do? Thirdly, look what he does here. He humbly reminds God of his promises. Now think about this. This is a great pattern for approaching the Lord when we have a problem. He says, he says Lord, in, he says basically this in verse, what is it, verse 8. He says, please remember, Lord, remember what you told your servant Moses I mean, basically, he's going all the way back. He's, and this is something we're invited to do as well, you know, sort of reaffirm our belief in God's promises. I mean, think about this. It's very curious, isn't it? Nehemiah says, remember. Now, wait a second. Does, does God forget stuff? Really? It's like, oh, Nehemiah, thank you. You know, I, I, I forgot. Yeah, that's a good reminder. No, Nehemiah's not saying, like, remember because God forgets stuff. You know what he's doing? When, when that shows up, and you'll see it in the Bible every now and then, where someone will say, remember, God, your promises. What, he, what he's basically saying is, Lord, I'm claiming the promises that you give, and I'm fastening, fastening myself to the promises of your word. It's like I'm, I'm hammering myself in. I'm latching in. I'm hooking in to you, and I'm claiming your promise as my own. It's a very powerful concept. It's like I'm staking myself on who I know you to be. It's great. And then he takes it one step further, doesn't he? And what does he do next? He reaffirms their relationship with God. 
Now look at that. How, what, are, what are you talking about? He's talking about his people, right? He says, look, he says, we are your servants. The people you rescued a long time ago in the land of bondage, he's talking about Egypt. He goes, Lord, we are your servants. Now, this is important. He's reaffirming. He's saying, Lord, this is who we are. Look, it's like he's saying, God, well, I, just want, I just want to say this. You know, you may, a long time ago you showed up and you did something amazing in us. We're your, we don't even exist as a people without you, he's saying. He's saying, look, and, and the truth is, Lord, and this is a very humble thing. When he says, I've sinned, we've sinned. You know what he's saying? Lord, we have not always lived up to the people you've called us to be. But I need to tell you, we are committed and in love with you, nonetheless. And how relatable is that? Lord, there have been times when I have not lived up to who you have called me to be, but I know still, I reaffirm the fact that I still am your servant. I, I am committed to you, Lord. I, I, I may not always show up the way that I should be showing up, but I, and we didn't. He's saying, Nehemiah's saying, and we didn't. We, we, we brought this on. We, we choked. But you know what, Lord? Despite whatever's happened, Lord, I, just want, I just need to say it. Even in our flaws, even in our weaknesses, even in our stubbornness, we are your servants. And I'm reaffirming that. That's a very powerful dynamic, especially when we feel like we fail God. To say, Lord, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not pretending. But I just want to say, it's like Peter, right? When at the, after his failure, what does he do? After Jesus says to him, you know what, it's okay. Peter says, Lord, you know, just, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm no good. I, I, I'm not the guy. Find me, Lord. I, I, it's like that one time he says, depart from me. I'm just a, I'm just a sinful man. The Lord says, you know, I, I'm not giving up on you. No way. And you know what? Peter models a lot of the same principles. There's such an honesty, an authenticness to it. And, and then he doesn't stop there, though. Nehemiah does one more thing, doesn't he? he? Not only does he affirm the relationship, but then he also then adds this. He asks God to give him success. I mean, he asks God to do it. Now, so, now, that is a great truth in and of itself, right? He makes his request known. He says, listen to the prayers, Lord, that I'm offering right now. So, Lord, I'm honoring who you are. I start there. I say, this is who you are. Then I come back and I follow this up, Lord. And I'm saying, look, we got off course. Not you. This is our issue. And, and then he says, but you know what, Lord? I'm going to ask you to, to remember your promises. I'm going to claim your words and your promises. And then on top of that, Lord, I'm going to reaffirm the fact that we are committed to you. And whether or not you do it... Our service to you, our relationship with you is not dependent on you doing what we want. It is dependent only on the commitment we've made to you. Therefore, on that basis, not as a way of manipulating you, God, to do anything. My service is independent of your answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway to show up. That's a powerful thing. I'm going to ask you to swing open a door that I cannot open. Because in his case, he couldn't just say, you know, King, uh, you know, I got to go. Uh, I quit. It's like, he might as well have said, you know, I'm leaving the land of the living, right? I mean, that was it. For, he didn't have a choice. His, jo his job was absolutely, you know, unquestionably unalterable. He was, he was completely dependent on the king giving him permission. He couldn't do anything without a release. And so he says, God, I need you to open a door that I cannot open. I was reminded of the, the uh, Proverbs 21.1, where it says that the king's heart is like a river in the hand of God, right? He says it's like a stream of water. 
in, in directed by the Lord, that he can turn it however he wills. You know what? We may not have kings in our lives. We have other people who are in authority, gatekeepers, bosses, managers. We'll talk about that in a moment. So let's take this prayer, this amazing prayer, which shows us how to approach God and apply it. Let me start just quickly. Let me put this on the board. A lot of times, disruptive moments, here's, here's how I like us to apply it firstly. Disruptive moments are going to often be what stimulates a new phase of building in our lives, a new season of building. Because, see, a lot of times we, we have situations that arise and we go, oh, this is awful. This is a bad thing, right? There's, this is not good, this disruptive moment. And, in, and I'm going to suggest that in these disruptive moments that that's often a place where our priorities are challenged and, and in some cases reordered. Now, what, what, might, what might a disruptive moment be? It, it could be, for some of us, it could be like the onset of a, of, a, of a disease or of an illness or a condition that we're having to battle. It's like came out of the left field. What do we, what, it's like this is disrupting my world. It might have to do with something that's going on in our job that, or, or a loss of a job or a sense that our skills are not going to necessarily be able to maintain what we have. It might have to do with a situation that's emerging in the workplace that's becoming increasingly perilous, and we sense that. It might have to do with a critical element of a key relationship in our life that is breaking down, and we feel powerless to watch it, it stop it almost, even as it is eroding before our eyes. And we know that there may be some things that we're doing to contribute to it, but at the same time, it's not, that's not minimizing the frustration we feel and the discouragement we feel about the walls that are being built. It can happen at a number of levels. The point is that there are disruptive moments that come in life that almost drop us in our steps. And here's the case with Nehemiah. Think about it. Now think about it for a moment. Was his disruptive moment directly connected to his, uh, himself? No. His disruptive moment had to do with news about his people and their condition. Remember I talked about it? Their distressed place distressed his heart. All of a sudden, it sends him, listen, we're going to see it in the weeks ahead, on a journey. The journey that he's going to make ultimately actually is going to be a literal journey. He is going to leave Persia where he is working and living his homeland and he is going to go to Jerusalem. So ultimately, he is going to find his way to Jerusalem. He's going to make a, a literal journey. But there's another journey. It's a spiritual one. Here's the, here's the irony, or is it? While God invites him to build a wall for the protection of the people, God is also going to be building something inside of him. The, and that's exactly sometimes what God uses these disruptive places. Now, I'll tell you something else. There are other disruptive places. You know what I've come, I've been reading a lot about life stages. It's something that I actually enjoy reading along with history. And one of the things I've been realizing is there are a couple of key places where people oftentimes, we oftentimes have a lot of questions around what we're building. One of those places is an obvious one. It's often called the midlife place. So we often find people, many of us find ourselves in situations where we start to really evaluate what, what we've been building and we're coming out of a stage of life and we're starting to reevaluate ourselves. And, and by the way, that's where a lot of bad decisions can be made too that have tremendous regretful impact. Be very careful in that place. Okay, but it's a disruptive place. It's kind of like trying to redefine our identity. And we're not, we're kind of, there's a restlessness of the soul. You know what I've also been reading a lot about? There's also a place, I think, in the, in the early stage of life, say around that, that place when we're coming out of school. In many cases, college is one of those places. You're coming in, you're starting to face a new world. And it's kind of like, well, who am I? And where am I supposed to go? And there's a lot of angst around that, especially in an economy like ours. 
There's a lot of sense of, well, you know, I'm, I'm afraid. You know, I was, I was, on one stage, there's kind of a, a little bit of a fear of like, wow, you know, what am I going to do? Who am I supposed to be? And on the other side, there's this, this kind of this fear like, life's going to pass me by, and i got to act on it before I, before I lose it. And in both of those places, I'm going to suggest they can be disruptive places. It's like, a, it's like a shock to our system. It redefines things. And you know what I'm going to suggest? That in those places, God can, be, if we welcome the Lord into that place, he can do an amazing thing of recreation and renewal and direction and a new building phase in our lives can occur out of that disruptive place. Frequently, it's the push of a problem that we are unable to fully deal with that, that causes us to depend on God in fresh, fresh, new, and vigorous ways. Oftentimes, I've found that the Lord is trying to move, build something in us, and the disruptive place where things are being shaken up is a place where something new can come. It's dangerous because it involves every opportunity that has a risk attached to it has also the potential to go out of control. And it can reel off into crazy places. At the same time, there is this tremendous opportunity for breakthrough and real, authentic renewal. Key things. Disruptive places can be places where God builds things. Secondly, though, notice what else. Speaking of problems, there is a power. Do you see it? In owning a problem. Now, here's the deal. In Nehemiah's case, I mean, what does he do? What I'm talking about is this. Nehemiah... um, is, is he makes this decision in, to, to confess the fault of his people. And he starts saying, Lord, you know, we've been ignoring your ways. We've been, we've been disobeying your commands. And, and he, then he includes himself in it. And, and it's, like, it's like Nehemiah says, listen, God. It's like he's saying, God, the, there's, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this thing. I'm being really real with you, Lord. We got in this place because of our choices. I'm, not, no, I'm stripping it bare. I'm honest. The choice we made got us here. But now, Lord, I'm asking you, even with that, I need you to show up. I need you to show up for us right there, Lord. There's something about the power of owning something. And he says, look, I'm not trying to pretend. I'm not trying to act like we haven't been, you know, and in some cases, some things we can say, well, this is a product of what I've done. Other cases, it's something we had no control over. And we find ourselves in a situation that we're kind of like, just, it, it happened, But I'm going to tell you, there are times where we get to what Nehemiah got to where he says, Lord, I'm not going to try to pull anything on you. I'm not trying to sugarcoat this thing. I'm just going to be as real as I can. We're in this place because we haven't been obeying you. But you know what, Lord? I need you to show up. And you know what? I'm telling you something. It's been said that confession is half the restoration. Confession is half the restoration. It's like we're halfway there when we just own it. It's like, God, I'm I'm just being real and honest. Confession. Think about what is, to me, the greatest, I, the, the story that Jesus told that I love the most is the, is the parable of the prodigal. I just, I just see everything in the heart of God there. But what did the prodigal do? Remember the prodigal? He runs away from his father. He says, I'm cashing it in. Give me my inheritance. He goes off to the far country, spends everything on riotous living, ends up going to the bottom of the barrel where he's, it's a, it's a long story. He's bad. And in the middle of his shame, And there was nothing more degrading for the illustration that Jesus used for a Jewish young man to be having to work on a pig farm and envying the pigs who ate better than he did. In that place, he says, what am I doing? I'm going home. And it's Jesus says, and he made his way. He says, I'm going to tell my mom. I'm going to say to my father, I'm going to tell my father I've sinned. 
I'm, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Can you just hire me on? He says he's making his way home. And, and the father, Jesus says, has been looking for him every day. When he sees him, they, he just runs to him. And he throws himself on him. Remember that? You remember it all. And he just starts crying. They were all both crying. The skinny, stinky boy. <laughs> and the dad who's enveloping him, and he's just kissing him. And he's saying, son, you're home. And he says, father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God. And his father just envelops him and says, my son who is lost is home. Bring out the fatted calf. Bring out the robe. Bring out the ring. This is like, it's the, it's the extravagant love of God. But, it start, but on his part, where does it start? He owns it. He owns it. And there's something, hear me out. There's something about humility that God cannot resist. God is drawn to the humble of spirit, but he resists the proud. He would rather have us come to him with our mess and our inconsistency, our contradictions, and say, here's my soul, than to come with arrogance and say, God, you know what? Do you, um, you know, I've decided to let you in. <laughs> it's like, you get me. It's like God says, go to the back of the line. Right? Get the back of the line. I don't need your pride, your arrogance. I want a broken heart. Now we can go. Can't help a person who doesn't see their need. Which is why I go back. Disruptive moments are sometimes a gift. They strip us bare. Last thing, there are times, hear me out, where we are given permission. This is a long one, right? But it's, I, I couldn't think of any other way to phrase it. There are times when we're given permission to ask God right? To ask God to just give us favor with people whose permission we really need and sympathy we need. That we need, we need, and in his case, it was not just sympathy. He needed permission. I mean, he absolutely needed God to soften the heart of the king so that he could do what he was in his heart to do. Some of us have situations where there are key people in our lives. I mentioned already, could be a boss, could be a manager, could be a gatekeeper. There are people, we, we, we were saying like, Lord, I need you to do this. I need you to show up and soften their heart. I need you to give me an opening here. God, I know I'm not saying you owe me anything, but I'm asking you. I'm asking you to do it. It might be for a parent. It might be for a child who's breaking our heart. We can't get through to them. That's a unique pain. Hard to bear. God, show up. Forget them not. Remember them. Break through the wall. Break through the barrier. Lord, give me success. Swing open the door. And a lot of times Jesus said, if we're just at, who don't know what God might do? God, Nehemiah's going, Lord, I can't do it any other way. I, I'm, I got, I got, there's nothing I can do. I, if you don't help me, I can't do it. So I'm, on the basis of all the things I've mentioned, I now ask you, open the door. Give me success. Are there things that God's asking us to ask him for? And, and again, I, I go back to our own situation. You know, we've been asking God, open a door, open a door for us, Lord. We need to, we need to find a place. And, and here's the deal. Sometimes we say, open the door, open the door, and God's, God decides to open this door over here. It's like, right? That door opens. It's like, but this is the one I've been asking for. Yeah, but this is the one I'm opening. And then, and you know, we go, 
Okay, you know, I'm going with you then, Lord. And I'm going to walk through that by faith because you know why? I can see that you're in this. And then when those doors open, and we're going to watch this, that's when we need courage. And that's when we need faith to risk. Because when the door swings open, and sometimes it does, now what? Let's pray. Lord, we, we, uh, we love your words. There is so much life in your words. Let your word abide in us. And I pray that some of us, Lord, would catch a vision of what really means something in life at the end of the day. It's about loving you, loving people. It's about investing in things that are going to connect with others, Lord, to help them find you. I pray that we would be people who are open to taking risks, stretching beyond our own comfort zones, Lord. Um, there are times where I realize that you actually can use a disruptive thing to bring about an amazing season of building and breakthrough. And for some of us, that's exactly the promise we're claiming. We're just going to claim, we're going to fasten ourselves on to the goodness of God. And instead of falling into a place of dark criticism, where it's so easy to sort of get depressed and discouraged, Lord, fill us with a sense of, of optimistic faith and help us, Lord, to begin to prepare for a door that when it swings open, we can walk into it. So I'm just going to ask you, Lord, as we close the service out, I pray that you would, you would bless our time of giving. Bless the song that we close with. It's, it's just a song that declares our need to, to think about this, this limited gift called life and what it means to, to risk sometimes for things that you're calling us to step into. And so for some of us, Lord, we're at that, those key places where we're really kind of stuck, and maybe some of us are afraid, but we talked about it. And maybe some of us are kind of just restless. Meet us in both those places, Lord, along the way. Keep us in the path that is the way of life. Let our faith grow strong. Teach us to stay in your love. This is what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.